the Be True Chronicles by J.S. Blue. Chapter 1. The Clearing Be True was flying, blissfully high up in the clouds, wind pushing against her face. As she looked below, she could see forests and lakes and tiny roads that looked like the lines on a map. She was so high up that big, puffy, white clouds she loved so much were thousands and thousands of feet below her. She could see their shadows moving slowly over the land. She was so happy and felt no fear as she flew across the blue sky, arms outstretched like a bird's wings. She could change directions and make loops. She could fly upside down, backwards, forwards. It was all so effortless for her. She started to make a large loop and was halfway through the loop, facing up towards the endless blue sky when she felt something wet hit her face repeatedly. She also heard something. It was quiet, but audible. More water drops were hitting her face. She looked above again, but saw no rain clouds above her. All at once, Beatru realized she was dreaming, woke up, and quickly sat upright as a steady rain was now pouring down on her. She awoke to find herself in a small clearing amidst a large wooded forest. There was a damp chill in the air. Beatru was very confused. Where was she? Why was she outside? What had happened to her? She was still wearing the outfit she had on at dinner, a Sun Tribe 7 t-shirt under a light blue hoodie, dark blue jeans, and her gray and white sneakers. She couldn't tell if it was just past morning dawn or close to sunset as the rain clouds blocked the sun. Plus, she had no idea which way was north or south, east or west. She tried to remember how she got there, but her last memory was of sitting at dinner with her brother, Dante, and laughing at his hilarious, ridiculous jokes. There was no memory of anything that happened after dinner. Beatru was so focused on figuring out her situation, she had forgotten about the sound she'd heard in her dream. Beatru jolted up and turned around. She could not believe her eyes. Before her stood a large, majestic, Cyrenian hind, just like those her father used to describe in his wonderful Greek stories. It was a huge creature. She tried to scream but could not muster a sound, as though her tongue was frozen. She stood still, terrified, and marveled over the great hind in front of her that had been walking slowly towards her while she was asleep. The hind was a gorgeous, massive animal that stood several feet above Beatru. It looked like a deer, but 
much, much larger with massive golden antlers and shiny hooves that looked made of brass. The hind's hide was black as night and seemed to gleam in the rain-soaked light. The hind's eyes were large and illuminated in a warm golden glow. When Beatru had jumped around to face the hind, the hind had stepped back several feet but was again stepping towards her slowly. Her golden eyes appeared to hold fear. Beatru couldn't move. She remained petrified with shock and confusion. How is this possible? she thought to herself. And where is Dante? Beatru wanted to move backwards, away from the hind, but still could not move. The great hind got to within three feet of her when it stopped. There was a moment of silence. Beatru thought she heard something in the distance to her right. The hind stared deeply into Beatru's eyes, and Beatru stared back, fearful and confused. She didn't think the hind intended to eat her or hurt her. It could have done that while she was sleeping. But Beatru was still very frightened. Beatru was struggling to muster the strength and will to run away when over a small sloping hill to her right, Beatru could hear the sound of many footsteps approaching their position. The hind leaned forward without moving her hooves, as though her neck was stretching and extending. She got within a foot of Beatru's face and quietly but boldly whispered, They're coming for us. We must go right now. Beatru's eyes grew large. You could... Can talk? She asked, utterly baffled by this increasingly strange sensation. The hind turned its head towards the growing noise over the hill with a look of grave concern, then turned back to be true and said in a voice that sounded distinctly female, There's no time to explain. You must get on my back now. We must away. Beatru could feel her jaw hanging agape but still could not muster the will to move even an inch. The hind lowered its head so that its eyes were level with Beatru's. Climb upon me now, or this story ends for both of us. The reality of Beatru's very unbelievable situation finally snapped into focus, and she ran up the hind's lowered head between its golden antlers onto its back and turned around. Beatru sat down on the hind's head and grabbed a hold of the golden antlers. The growing sound of footsteps suddenly stopped. Beatru looked up at the top of the hill and saw why the hind was so urgent in her plea for them to leave. There were ten men lined up, side by side, standing atop the wooded hill in a line. Beatru knew at once they were soldiers. Each wore a golden helmet that covered their entire face. Their helmets had long slots with which to see out of, and each had a small red plume that stuck out of the top. The soldiers wore bright red robes adorned with decorative gold trim, and each one held a loaded bow, except for the soldier on the far right, who had a long golden trident in his left hand that extended past his head. Each of their arrows was aimed at the hind's head. The soldier with a trident raised his right arm above his head, fist clenched. As he did this, 
the other nine soldiers pulled back even further on their bowstrings. Beetroo gasped. The hind's body tightened and got very low to the ground before springing nearly twenty feet horizontally to its right, away from the soldiers. Beetroo grasped the antlers as tightly as she could to avoid being tossed off. The trident soldier dropped his right hand and the other soldiers released their arrows. Beetroo could hear the arrows zip by within inches of her head. She crouched as low as possible upon the hind's large head. One of the arrows grazed the rear quarters of the hind, leaving a long cut in the hind's hide. It hissed angrily. It was moving at top speed now, zigging and zagging through the thick wood as the increasingly distant soldiers quickly reloaded their bows and shot again. But it was far too late. The hind was as fast as the wind and knew the wood well. The arrows fell to the ground well short of their target. The hind continued to push forward into the wood as fast as it could, and Beetroo sensed the immediate danger was behind them for now. She felt slightly relieved but still utterly baffled by the situation she found herself in. She was, after all, riding on the back of a Cyrenian hind, a mythical creature that should not exist, and one that could talk and had glowing golden eyes in a strange wood she was certain she'd never seen before, in a land that felt distinctly different than anywhere she'd ever been before. She'd not even had breakfast yet. Uh, can you please slow down so that I can ask some questions, um, er, ma'am? Asked Beetroo with trepidation. The hind only sped up faster and said nothing. Beetroo was a very smart child. She kept her head low and considered a different approach to get the hind's attention. I really have to pee badly and don't want to have to pee on you. It was true. Beetroo remembered drinking two large glasses of Dante's lemonade at dinner. She had no memory of using the restroom afterwards. Of course, she had no memory of anything between dinner and waking up in the rain. The hind maintained its high speed, but with winded breath said, If you must, then do so. We mustn't stop until we reach the clearing. The red men won't make it to the clearing any time soon, assuming they're still pursuing us, not without their horses. And those horses will be sleeping soundly for at least another four to six hours. We will be safe there, if only for a short while. Beetroo frowned. She would hold her pee as long as she could. And though she was scared of the soldiers, the red men, and happy that the hind was moving away from them rapidly, she had a growing list of important questions that remained fully unanswered. She looked around the wood as it zipped past them. It was basically the same as any other wood she'd ever been in, but something about it felt very foreign to her. She loved the forest by her old house and had spent many days and nights hiking and camping there with Dante and her parents. She had hiked in many other woods her entire nine years of life, but this wood was something very different. 
She just could not figure out what was different. The thought of her parents made her sad, as it always did. The hind began to slow down as it started to tire out. We are getting close, said the hind, in between gasps for air. The rain had stopped, but the sky remained overcast and gray. Petru concluded it was morning, as it was getting brighter in the wood, but her sense of direction was still way off. Which direction are we headed? asked Petru. The clearing is to the west, said the hind. The trees began to thin out as the hind ascended a long stretch of land covered in tall grass that sloped gently upwards towards an edge in the distance that separated the land from the sky. There were only a few isolated trees and bushes around them now. They had reached the clearing. Here we are, finally, said the exhausted hind. She slowed to a trot and stopped just shy of the edge of a cliff, which gave way to an amazing view of a huge plain that stretched out towards a large mountain range in the great distance. There were only a few bushes and trees scattered across the flat plain. Petru thought it looked as flat as a tabletop. She could see a river snaking around towards the northwest, and was instantly aware of a suddenly raging thirst. The hind lowered its head and Beetru quickly stepped off. She ran to a bush nearby where she could properly manage her bathroom business. She felt much better and walked back to the hind who was cleaning its arrow wound with its tongue. Beetru opened her mouth to ask the first of many questions when the hind turned to her and said, I know you have many, many questions, and I will happily answer each one of them once I know we are safely clear from the Red Men. We were fortunate my sleep spell worked on their horses this time. It doesn't always work, but they will come back for us with horses, larger numbers, and fire arrows. We will rest here for a few more minutes. Then we must go down the drop-off, and out to the Great Plain as quickly as possible. The Plain is neutral territory, and most, generally, observe that law. Even the Dark Scourge and his Dark Agents. Beatru suddenly felt nauseous, and tears began to well up in her eyes. None of this made any sense to her, and she began to question whether or not this experience was just another dream a nightmare from which she would soon awake. She took a deep breath and held it as long as she could. She exhaled. She closed her eyes and took another huge breath and held it as long as she could. She exhaled again and then opened her eyes. The hind was still there, and she was still standing in the clearing. This was no dream, but it was very different, very different. She turned to face the hind. Who are you, and who are the red men? Why are they after you? Why are they after me? Is any of this actually real? asked Beatru as calmly as she could 
but failing mostly. The hind walked over to Beetrue and lowered her face down to Beetrue's level. The hind looked at her with its warm, golden eyes and said, My name is Cosima, Queen Cosima. And yes, all of this is real, as hard as I'm sure it is for you to believe right now. The Red Men are agents for the Dark Scourge, a very dangerous and powerful emperor who claims dominion over this part of the world. They are after me because I am the ruler over their greatest rival. They are after you because you hold the secret to their undoing. Bichu heard everything Queen Cosma had said to her. She'd heard it all clearly, but she felt one hundred times more confused and had at least one hundred more questions. But, started Beetru before the hind interrupted her, Break is over, child. There is no time to waste, said Queen Cosima as she lowered her head to Beetru to climb up. Your Highness? asked Beetru. Please, call me Cosima. I so detest the pettiness of titles. I was born a princess who later became a queen because of rules written by my ancestors many, many generations ago. Call me Cosima, and hold all your other questions until after we find safe shelter out on the plain. And please, remember to hold on tightly to my antlers as the trek down to the plain will be dangerous. We go now, with excessive haste, child. My name is Beetru. Yes, Beetru, I know your name. Now climb up. Beetru climbed back on top of Queen Cosma's head, and they began the descent from the clearing down a very steep and treacherous path cut into the cliffs and out to the plain. Beetru could see the sky starting to clear in the west and watched as a single sunbeam cut through an opening in the clouds. The sight of the sunbeam gave her the sense that things would eventually be okay. But she remained very confused, very scared, and very, very thirsty. She missed Dante. She missed her parents. I'm so thirsty, Cosima, said Beetrue. I am too, Beetrue. Please be patient, replied the queen. Within a minute or two, Beetrue fell sound asleep on Queen Cosima's head, her hands still clasping the hind's antlers. We'll be right back. Hey parents! Yeah, you! Are you looking for a podcast your kids will really love? Well, we made one just for you. And for us. As genuine, all-natural kids ourselves, we know what makes a fun and interesting podcast. So we decided to make it ourselves. Every show is packed with interviews, stories, and on-the-ground reporting. We have interviewed everyone from scientists to Grammy Award-winning musicians to NFL quarterbacks. Listen to Wild Interest wherever you get your podcasts. Chapter 2 The River and the Turtle When Beetru woke up, it was nearly sunset. 
she opened her eyes to a cloudless blue sky and a steady breeze. The sun hung just above the mountains in the west. Beetru was laying against a huge oak tree, the only tree that seemed to be around, standing tall in a sea of tall grass. Beetru stood up to look around for the queen. She needed water desperately and answers to her many questions. She looked in all directions but saw nothing but a few distant trees in the mountains. Where was the queen? she thought to herself. To the west, the mountains that she'd seen from the overlook at the edge of the clearing were much closer and much larger than she initially realized, but still easily two days' walk away from her. There was no sign of Queen Cosima anywhere. Beatru scratched her head for a moment. This was quite a predicament, with no clear solutions. The thoughts and questions flooding Beatru's mind were offset by her howling thirst. She needed water desperately. Her father once told her a person could go weeks without food, but only a few days without water. Beatru had no idea how much time had passed since her dinner with Dante or her last drink of water. All she knew was that this was the very worst thirst she'd ever had in all of her nine years. She remembered seeing a long river when they had reached the top of the clearing and decided it was the only solution to satisfy her raging thirst. She just needed to find it. She had her sense of direction back and turned directly to face the sun. That's due west, which means, she said as she turned 90 degrees to her right, this is north. From the cliffs she had seen a river towards the northwest, which she hoped they had not crossed while she was sleeping. Beatru then reached into a pocket to see if she had anything to leave behind for the queen to let her know that she was searching for the river. But both pockets were empty. She looked around the tree for anything she could use to leave a message for Queen Cosima. She found scores of acorns near the tree in the tall grass. She gathered nearly one hundred of them and set them in a pile. She ripped out a large square patch of tall grass close to the tree to create a level surface and used the acorns to form a message. Heading north in search of the river, Beetru. With calm determination, she began her walk north, hoping the river was not too far away as the sun was now well below the mountains. It would soon be dark across the plain. The first hour of her walk went smoothly, even as it became dark. The plain was flat, and she was able to maintain a steady pace with little effort. She kept telling herself that each step forward was one less step required to find water. The plain was devoid of sound save for the sound of the wind. Every so often she would stop walking, close her eyes, and listen for the sound of rushing water but each time she only heard the wind. The next several hours of walking became more and more tiring. The sky was now quite dark. There was no moon on this night, and the brilliant stars did little to light her way. Without water, she was quickly losing strength and feeling increasingly exhausted. The air was cool, and the wind made it very cold. She was getting dizzy. 
She stopped to sit down, just for a moment, she thought to herself, and pulled the hood over her head. She had spent most of her walk trying to piece together everything that had happened since she'd had dinner with Dante, but could not fill in any blanks to explain what happened after dinner and before she awoke in the wood. She tucked her legs up under her chin and rested her head against them. She fell asleep in this pose only seconds later. Beatrice was awakened several hours later when a great wind blew her over hard on her side. The sun was coming up in the east and it was another cloudless day. She found herself wishing hard for more rain if only to catch raindrops in her poor, dried-up mouth. Her thirst was horrible now and her throat was woefully dry. She also had a terrible chill from the brisk morning air. She looked around and saw a large tree not too far away. The tree was quite tall. She thought that if she could climb up the top of the tree, she was an excellent tree climber. She might be able to see the river or perhaps a random pond. I should have done that yesterday, she exclaimed to herself. She got up and ran anxiously towards the tree with sore legs. It was another large oak tree like the one from the day before, and it had branches that were low enough for Beatrice to climb on. She was excited the closer she got to the tree, convinced that after several hours of walking the night before, the river should be easily visible if she could get high enough up in the tree. She slowed down as she came up to the tree. Then she saw something that sank her heart deep into her stomach. Heading north in search of the river. Be true. It was the same tree from the day before. Beatrice felt her legs give out beneath her. She collapsed to the ground and cried, although there were few tears as she was fully dehydrated. In the dark night, she'd lost her trajectory without the sun as her guide. While she thought she'd been walking in a straight line, she had in fact been turning ever so very slowly and slightly to her right all night long and had walked in a gigantic circle right back to where she had started her walk. It was a crushing blow. Beatrice was no closer to water, and here it was another day with no Queen Cosma to be found. After a few minutes of feeling sorry for herself, Beatrice decided to test her theory and climb the tree. She had no other options. The muscles in her arms and legs were aching terribly given her dehydration, but slowly she climbed to almost the top of the big oak tree. The branches near the top of the tree were pointing upward, spreading apart enough from the lower branches to allow visibility of her surroundings. She scanned the horizon to the north, but she found no signs of a river or anything other than fields of tall grass and some random trees. She turned to face the south in the hope that Cosima had crossed the river, which could mean it was south of her. She saw more fields of tall grass with the occasional bush or random tree. She was about to turn away when something caught her peripheral vision. She looked again to the south very closely and saw a flock of geese taking off not too far from her position. Beatrice's heart began to flutter. Geese need water just like people need water. Beatrice said aloud. She got out of the tree as quickly and carefully as she could. The dizziness had come back and Beatrice felt very light-headed, but she remained determined to find that river. 
Her life was in grave danger, and she was certain she would not live to see another sunrise without water. She moved slowly, but with a steady pace. After several minutes of walking, she turned to look back at the oak tree she'd just climbed. It looked very small to her. I must be close now, Beatrice desperately told herself. Soon enough, she heard a noise that wasn't just the blowing wind. She heard the sound of white noise coming from just in front of her. She started to run hard as nearly every aching muscle in her body screamed. She could now see the river coming into view as it cut directly across her path. She could feel tears of joy this time, trying to form in her eyes. It was a narrow river, maybe 50 or 60 feet across, with quick-moving clear water. As she got to the edge of the river, she could see a long bank stretching up and down the length of the river just below her. She jumped down to the bank and lay down on her stomach beside the moving water, ignoring the sharp rocks digging into her stomach and legs, and lowered her mouth towards the water. Despite every urge she felt to gulp large amounts of river water, she was careful not to overdo it. The sensation of the water touching her mouth and tongue was the most amazing feeling she could remember. She swished the water in her mouth and spit it out again and again, being careful not to drink too much too quickly. Beatrice splashed water on her happy face. She drank a little more water. She waited as patiently as she could and drank a little more. She was still very weak, but for the first time since the whole experience began in the wood, she was actually feeling better. She remained seated on the bank for most of the early morning, splashing water on her face, taking small drinks and trying to meditate. She was now all too aware of her next major challenge, finding something to eat. With her thirst addressed, her appetite was fully awake. First things first, she said to herself. She wanted to find something to hold water so that she could take it with her. But of course, there was nothing she could find that would work. She concluded she would need to stay close to the river from then on out, at least until she found Queen Cosima, or figured out where she was or how to get back home. Beatru was hungry, but not hungry enough to have any interest in eating the fish she'd seen in the river. Not yet, at least. Beatru was usually a very finicky eater to begin with and was not a big fan of seafood. She would need to get much hungrier before she attempted to fish for a meal. She stood up and looked around. She couldn't see much down by the river as it sat about eight feet below the main surface level of the plain it was cut into. She decided to climb back up to the plain to re-establish her bearings when a small voice behind her said, Oh, hello. Beatrice was so caught off guard by the greeting that she screamed. She turned around and saw a large old river turtle with a multicolored shell. He had just emerged from the river. The turtle wore a slight smile and had warm, friendly eyes. I was told to keep an eye out for you, but figured I wouldn't see you as I am an old turtle, who rarely makes it very far away from this particular riverbank, and the great plain is so massive. Hard to see a little girl on the great plain from down here. The winds must be blowing in your favor today. This is a very good, most wonderful turn of events. 
Beatrice was still dealing with having met a talking hind the day before, and now a talking turtle. Who are you? asked Beatrice. I'm Brick, the river turtle, and I'm pleased to make your acquaintance, Beatrice. You know my name, too? asked Beatrice with hopeful curiosity. Indeed I do. Queen Cosimer told me about you shortly before she was captured yesterday, said Brick, lowering and shaking his head. Wait, she was captured? Uh, by those red men? asked Beatrice. It wasn't the red men, said the turtle as he walked closer to Beatrice. The red men never venture out onto the plain, usually. No, it was Myla, the enchantress. Uh, Myla the who? asked Beatrice. The enchantress. Uh, she's a sorcerer. Uh, she's a lot of trouble is what she is. Everything happened so quickly yesterday and within seconds. I just... Myla and Queen Cosimo were gone. But it's a much longer story than just that, as I'm sure you can gather. Beatrice's stomach then rumbled so loudly that Brick heard it. It seems like we need to get you some food. Uh, I can help with that, said Brick, as he turned around and began to walk down the bank in the direction of the mountains. Come along, I have food for you. Beatrice had so many more questions than she had when she woke up that morning. She was starting to think that she may be in another place and another time, a concept she'd have scoffed at days before meeting the talking animals, but now she felt anything was possible to account for her strange disposition. But she needed food more than anything, and followed Brick down the river bank. Chapter 3 Stampede Brick, the old river turtle with the multicolored shell, led Beatrue down the riverbank until they came to a grassy slope that sat between the river and the plain. There were two large oak trees near the top of the slope. Please go and find a comfortable spot next to one of those trees, and I will bring you something to eat. I don't have much, but I should have enough to take the edge off said Brick. Well, thank you very much, said Beatrue, as she ascended the slope and sat down against the base of one of the trees facing towards the mountain. In the haste of the previous 36 hours, she'd only glanced at the mountains as a point of reference. She hadn't studied them at any length. There were no mountains near where Beatrue lived, but she'd visited many places that had them, and these looked much larger to her than any she'd seen previously. While the start of the mountain range was easily two to three days' walk away, the foothills on the southern side of the range appeared to be fairly close, maybe a half a day's walk away. She wondered if her path would take her to those mountains. She shuddered at the thought. Red men with deadly arrows, a long night walk on a windy, lonely plain, near death by dehydration, talking animals with crazy stories about scary people, these experiences conflated to snap Beatrue out of any sense of delusion that she had an easy path back to Dante or her home. She looked at her sneakers. 
She always wore them without socks and worried how well they would hold up should she need to hike mountains or walk in the snow. Brick came back up, towing a small red wagon behind him the size of a toy. Beecher was excited to see the wagon held sliced strawberries, an assortment of nuts, cut up avocado, some chopped carrots, and a small glass jar with a metal lid that held water. The jar is small, but will help keep a little water handy on your journey. Oh, thank you, Brick, said Beetroo with a warm smile. She grabbed a few strawberries and quickly tossed them into her mouth. They were the most delicious strawberries she'd ever tasted. She quickly consumed everything in the wagon, including the water in the jar. It would take her some time to fully rehydrate, and she promised herself then to never, ever pass on the chance to drink water again. Thank you, Brick. I feel so much better. That was a delicious meal, exclaimed Beetroo. Brick smiled and sat down next to her. I'm pleased you liked it, even though I'm sure it barely dented your hunger. I raised most of this lovely food in my personal garden back in my den. It's just a hobby I like, so that when I have the rare guest, I can give them something to eat. I myself prefer waterweed and the occasional minnow, said Brick with a slight smirk. His face grew serious. I know you have many questions. I may not know the answers to all of them, but I will certainly do my best to answer as many as I can. Beetroo wiped off her mouth with her sleeve and looked around the great plain. She looked at Brick and asked, Where is this place? The whole time I've been here, I've assumed it's just a part of the world I've never visited before. But something about my time here has felt... It's... She paused for a moment. Very different, somehow. It doesn't feel like my world feels, even though it seems very much like my world. Brick smiled again. It feels strange to you because it's not your world. Beetroo felt a chill shoot up her spine. While she'd considered the possibility that somehow she was in another world by means unforeseen, hearing it from Brick zapped her with unease and a bit of dizziness. How did I get here? And how long have I been here? She asked, scared to hear Brick's response. You came to this world through the enigmatic egress, a gateway that connects your world to this world, like a doorway. Whenever someone passes through it, all memory of their transfer is erased. The transfer renders one unconscious, sometimes for many hours. Beetroo considered this for a moment. I went through this gateway and ended up in the wood. That's crazy, but explains how I got here and why I was asleep when Cosima found me. So if I went back to the wood, I could find the enigmatic egress and use it to go back home, couldn't I? She asked hopefully. You would think that was the solution. Unfortunately, once someone has transferred through the gateway, it immediately closes and vanishes. When and where it re-eventually reopens remains a big mystery, hence its name. 
and nobody has been able to track or predict its behavior. It's quite the conundrum. I myself have never completed a transfer. I'm perfectly happy living on the river in the middle of the Great Plain, but I have seen it with my own eyes twice before. Beatrice's heart began to flutter again. But it is possible to transfer back, isn't it? Yes, it is, and given recent events, it would seem, said Brick, stopping mid-sentence, his head tilting to the side. Brick? Quiet, please, said Brick, as he hurried around the tree to look on the other side. Beatrice stood up and walked around the tree to see what Brick was looking at. Oh, no, this isn't good, said Brick with wide eyes. What is it? I, I don't see any, Beatrice said, stopping. In the distance, she saw a large cloud of dust rising off the plain. It was extremely long and extended for many miles in either direction. It appeared to be heading directly towards them. Brick, what is that? It's the fire horns. The chairman's fire horns. They're doing a massive sweep on the plane for reasons I can only imagine. We must away, said Brick, as he scampered hurriedly down the grassy slope to the river bank, leaving his wagon behind. Come now, Beatrue. There's no time to waste. Beatrue could not turn away from the dusty cloud of what looked like horses. She could see hundreds of them galloping in a single, seemingly endless line. As they got closer, Beatrue could see that they were larger than the horses in her world. Each was dark gray in color with long horns, just like unicorns. Their eyes were bright emerald green and glowing. Beatrue, you must get down to the riverbank, quickly now! screamed Brick, who nearly was to the bank himself. Beatrue felt the hard vibration in the ground from the galloping of hundreds of firehorn hooves and began to walk backwards quickly. She could not stop looking at their horns. She could see more clearly the closer they got. They did not taper to a point like a unicorn's horn. They were shaped like cylinders. In the middle of the approaching throng, one of the firehorns raised back its head and howled with a tone that was as terrifying as it was loud and unlike anything Pichu had ever heard. The howling firehorn had moved far out in front of the approaching throng and, without slowing down even slightly, lowered its head towards the ground. Bitru watched in shock and horror as a long stream of fire shot out of its horn. The fire came out in a long, steady stream, igniting the tall grass in front of it and leaving a trail of raging fire behind it. The trailing horses galloped through the fire unscathed. Then, with perfect synchronization, all of the firehorns lowered their heads and began shooting fire out of their horns. It was an amazing, terrifying sight to see as the long line of firehorns and large dust cloud became a massive wall of fire. An endlessly wide inferno moving at a breakneck speed across the plain. Beatrue could feel a massive wave of heat as the firehorns were nearly upon them. Beatrue, run! screamed Brick. Beatrue spun around and ran down the slope to the riverbank. She couldn't see Brick anymore. She looked around in a panic for a place to hide. She was now too low to see the firehorns, but watched as both oak trees at the top of the grassy slope erupted in flames. 
This way. Come in here. Hurry, said Brick, who was next to a section of the riverbank that formed a wall. Directly behind Brick was a round opening that looked like a small cave entrance, maybe three feet in diameter. Brick ran inside it. Bichu hated caves and dark, small places because she was claustrophobic. But getting cooked by a wall of fire sounded far worse, and she ran into the mysterious cave behind Brick. Chapter 4 Colonel Rise The second Beetroo was safely inside the cave, Brick, who was sitting anxiously beside the entrance, pulled a lever, releasing a circular wooden door that rolled into place to cover the entrance. All at once, the cave was pitch black, and Beetroo had to fight herself not to scream. They could hear the deafening, thunderous galloping of the fire horns above them as they reached the edge of the river. The muffled pounding of over a thousand hooves was terrifying. And then there was silence. Brick, what's happening up there? whispered Beetroo. Shh, whispered Brick. While the galloping had stopped, Brick and Beetroo could hear the hoofsteps of one firehorn trotting steadily down towards the river. Be strong, child, and be silent, whispered Brick as quietly as he could. The sound of the hoofsteps moved past them towards the river and then stopped. Proceed to the next zone, exclaimed the firehorn by the river. The sound of its voice sent a chill down Beetroo's spine. The firehorns began to stir above them and move towards the river. The vibrations caused large chunks of dirt to fall on Beetroo and Brick. Within a few seconds, the firehorns had crossed the river and were gone. Brick struck a match and lit a small lantern beside him, revealing the cozy interior of his den. Beetroo noticed a long bookshelf that stood to the top of the left side wall, extending to the back of the den. At the back was a small turtle-sized door. On the right wall, there were three small pictures mounted midway up the wall in a line next to each other. The picture on the left was a painting of many trees in a wood on a foggy morning. The picture in the middle was a painting of the Great Plain, with the mountains in the distance. The painting on the right showed a sandy beach with the ocean crashing upon it on a stormy day. That was too close, said Brick quietly with a nervous smirk. We must remain quiet in case they come back. I've watched the firehorns perform sweeps on the plain for years but there's almost always some forewarning and clear sense that they will be coming, allowing those of us who live on the Great Plain to take shelter. A firehorn sweep is usually just a boastful show of the chairman's military strength, more flash than substance. But today, today was different. They were targeting us. Um, They were targeting you, said Brick, his eyes glowing in the candlelight. And they wanted both of us to see their fury unleashed. Beetroo frowned. 
But why? What exactly do they want with me? What could I possibly have that they want or need? Asked Beatru, pleading with Brick. Brick pondered Beatru's question. The Queen told me very little, as she was in a great rush when she visited. She said she needed to find one of her eagles to deliver an urgent message to her daughter, Princess Artina. She said should anything happen to her to please keep an eye out for you. Before I could respond to any of this, Myla was... Suddenly, just there, behind us, she laid her hands on the queen, and in a huge puff of green smoke, both vanished. When the smoke had cleared, there was no one there. Bichu looked at the paintings again. Brick, where is this ocean? It's on the other side of the mountains said Brick. I once saw it in a dream, as I've never been to see it. Uh, Few from these parts have ever braved the mountains for fear of the creatures who live in them. Plus, the mountains and lands beyond are all the dominion of the chairman, and he has sealed off access to his realm for many years now. What kind of creatures? Asked Beatru. Yetis, said Brick in a dry tone. But yetis aren't re... Beatru stopped herself from completing the sentence. Over the course of so little time, Beatru had quickly learned that in this world, anything was quite possible. And what about this chairman? What's his story? Many years ago, the chairman was a beloved engineer, builder, and charismatic community leader in the kingdom of purity, an idealist seeking unity and peace in our world. King Walter took notice of his good work and named him the Chairman of Prosperity, a role designed to help the king understand better ways to provide for his people and build a fully sustainable society. And this worked well for many years as purity thrived as a society based on equality, shared wisdom, and compassion for one's neighbors. Most loved King Walter. What happened? asked Beatru. Nobody knows for sure, but roughly thirty years ago, King Walter died to mysterious circumstances, and the chairman assumed control of purity. That's when the firehorns first began to appear on the plain. None of us had ever seen them before, and they are believed to be the creation of the chairman himself. But along with the firehorns came tales of the chairman enslaving all the subjects of purity to a life of hard labor and misery. Failure to adhere to the new ways meant imprisonment or accusations of treason and, often, execution. Beatru considered this for a moment. 
What happened to the chairman to turn him so bad? Brick shook his head and shrugged. Are the chairman and the Dark Scourge allies? No, they are mortal enemies. The Dark Scourge was once an apprentice named Jax, who worked for the chairman during the late reign of King Walter. Nobody knows exactly what caused the falling out between them, but one day, shortly after the king perished, the chairman determined the Dark Scourge was a threat to his rule and condemned him to be executed. However, on the day of his scheduled execution, the Dark Scourge with help from a small team of former royal guardsmen who would later become the first red men, escaped from his cell before the sun came up. And then he vanished for many, many years. To build up his minions? said Beetroo. Yes, to build his minions and his army of red men to return to purity and to make it his own. It sounds like these people used to be good people, and then the king dies and everything changes for the worse, said Beetroo, starting to feel slightly trapped in Brick's den. My belief is that something of great significance happened in purity, something that changed the chairman, and possibly the Dark Scourge. And I believe this led to King Walter's death. I believe one of them killed the king. I have to figure out why I'm involved in this, Brick. What led me through the egress thing? What's the connection? I just don't get it, said Beetroo with a ponderous frown. What happened to your parents? Beetroo looked at Brick and shrugged her shoulders. Nobody knows. One night they left to attend a meeting with some of their work people in the city. They said goodbye to Dante and me and never came back. Ever. The police searched for them and a local news station even interviewed Dante and me at one point. They talked to everyone at mom and dad's work, their laboratory, but nobody knew of the meeting. So your brother Dante, he took care of you? Asked Brick. Yes. Well, the court awarded custody of us to our Uncle Ben, who was retired and agreed to stay with us so we wouldn't need to change schools. But he isn't around very often because he's always sick and in the hospital. So Dante has been my brother and my mom and dad. He's the best said Beetroo with a quick smile that turned into a frown just as quickly. I need him. He would know what to do next. I know this is extraordinarily difficult for you, and I wish I had more answers. It does not make much sense as to why you are here or why seemingly both the Dark Scourge and the Chairman are after you. What do you think became of your parents? Beetroo paused for a long time. I don't know. I've always felt like somebody took them away from us. 
I just feel that they're still alive. I can feel them still, somehow, Beetru said. Perhaps you should go out and get some fresh air, Beetru. Just go quietly and keep your eyes and ears open for the firehorns in case they head back our way. I'll prepare another plate of food for you, and we can start working on a plan as well, said Brick as he turned to pass through the small door at the back of the den. Just pull that wooden lever down again, and the door will open. Beetru pulled down on the lever, and the circular door rolled into the wall of the den. She looked out the opening and could see the river. There were no unicorns by the river or on the opposite bank. She took a few steps out of the den when something caught her eye. Directly in front of her, lying next to the river, was a large bouquet of yellow roses bound together by a single red band. A white envelope had been tucked under the band. Beetru walked over to the flowers, reached down and pulled out the envelope. She opened it up to reveal a small red card with a drawing of a lotus flower on the front in black ink. She opened the card and read the message. Lady Beetru, welcome to our great world. We've been expecting you. I would be honored if you would join me for dinner at my palace in the Kingdom of Purity this evening. We have much to discuss, and I am confident you would prefer a warm bed to sleep in tonight over the dusty floor of the Great Plain. Please do not try to escape or fight with Colonel Rise and my Firehorns. They tend to get very hot-headed when people resist their orders, so it would be prudent of you to quite simply accept my invitation. I will explain everything once you get here. Best regards, the chairman. Beetru gasped. She read the message twice. Where are these firehorns? We have to get out of here, she thought to herself. Then she heard something that took her breath away. Oh, what say you, Beetru? Came a loud voice from behind her. Will you be joining the chairman for dinner tonight, or are you going to make this unnecessarily difficult for my battalion? Beetru turned around and found herself caught once again in a silent scream of sheer paralysis. Before her stood the entire Firehorn Battalion on the edge of the plain. They had not made a sound the entire time she'd been inside. Somehow the entire battalion had gone all the way back around, back across the river to the same spot where they'd paused earlier without Brick or Beetru hearing them. The Firehorn who'd been speaking to her began walking down the grassy slope to approach her. His bright emerald eyes glowed down at her. Beetru was terrified. He was massive in size. Now that he was closer, she could see old battle scars on his gray coat. His mane was turning white. He wore a small saddle with a long rope ladder that nearly touched the ground. He was smiling at her in a way that gave Beetru a distinct chill. I'm Colonel Rise. I'm the highest-ranking field commander in the chairman's armed guard. I am 
known to be trifled with, and I'd advise you to very quickly accept the chairman's invitation for dinner. Outside of it being a distinct honor and privilege for anyone to receive such an exclusive invitation, there is important business at hand that requires your immediate presence in purity, said the colonel as he moved to within ten feet of Beetrue and stopped. Had this been yesterday morning, when Beetrue awoke in the wood, she might have remained in her state of paralysis. But... Talking firehorns weren't quite as shocking today, and she mustered the strength to take in a deep breath before looking the colonel directly in his glowing eyes and saying, The chairman sends you and your full battalion to find a nine-year-old girl? Why? What makes me so special? Colonel Rise looked up at some of the other firehorns with an arrogant smirk before turning back to be true and saying, I was afraid you'd do this, and while I admire your bravery in delaying the inevitable, I should tell you that continued failure to adhere will lead to your most unfortunate and immediate demise. The turtle can stay. He's of no use to us, and lucky we don't incinerate him with fire while he sits in his den. Bichu looked towards Brick's den. He'd been sitting at the doorway for some time, sizing up the situation. He now walked towards her to be by her side. What is the chairman's business with this child, Colonel? And if she's so important as to require a full battalion of firehorns to escort her back to purity, why would you dare to threaten her life? asked Brick with a tone and attitude that suggested he was neither scared by the line of firehorns nor the Colonel himself. I doubt sincerely that the chairman would be happy with you killing her. So please spare us your unnecessarily bold talk. The colonel's eyes tightened and grew narrow. Arrogant fools, he hissed to himself. He then lowered his head and shot a single ball of fire from his horn that struck the ground just in front of Brick and to the side of Beetroo, creating a tiny but powerful explosion that sent both of them airborne. Brick back towards the den, Beetroo sideways and into the middle of the river. Beetroo, thinking as fast as she could while airborne, inhaled deeply and held her breath before going under the river's surface. She immediately felt the strong current pulling her away. Chapter 5 Friends in High Places The river current pulled Beetroo towards the mountain range to the west. By the time she popped her head out of the water for air, she was shocked to see that she was almost past the line of fire homes on the riverbank to her right. They looked down at her, confused as to what to do next, unmoving. Stop her, you fools! Stop her now! yelled Colonel Rise. But the firehorns continued to stand by the riverbank, watching as Beetroo slipped further and further away from them. Oh, the water will kill us, Colonel! exclaimed one firehorn. 
There's no way for us to retrieve her until she gets out of the river, yelled another. Follow her, you imbeciles, shouted an exasperated Colonel Rise. Beetroo was struggling. Though she was an excellent swimmer, it was difficult for her to keep her head above water. She was also worried about Brick, but was too far down the river to see him. The river began to widen significantly, and the pull of the current became less powerful. The firehorns were trotting down the riverbank to Beetroo's right so as to not lose sight of her, but were now much further away from her as she swam towards the left side of the river. Colonel Rise, seeing this, barked, Stanton! Macaulay! Jensen! Fireballs to the left of her, or my mark! Mark! The three firehorns launched fireballs from their horns that arced over the river to the left side of Beetroot. Beetroot could feel the heat of them as they passed just over her head and extinguished upon impact with the water. Again! yelled the frustrated colonel as the three firehorns launched three more fireballs to the left of Beetroot. This time, she simply ducked under the water as she swam. We can do this all day, Lady B. True. We will continue to walk alongside of you until you tire, inevitably, and are forced to come out of the water, said Colonel Rise with a sinister smile. B. True knew this was true. She had no plan other than to stay in the water until she had one. But she was very tired, and she was already considering giving up versus drowning. She heard rumbling to her left, turned to look and saw a large group of firehorns trotting up to her position on the south bank. You are surrounded on both sides, be true. I can see the exhaustion in you. Get out of the water and we will escort you to your meeting with the chairman. Stop wasting time. The harder you make this, the harder the chairman will make things on you. Beetru looked down the river and saw that it began to narrow a few hundred feet away. With her options decreasing down to none other than surrender, she felt nearly all remaining energy deplete from her body. The struggle to keep afloat, even swimming with the current, had worn her down. Swim towards the bank when the river narrows ahead and get out there. Let's get on with next steps and be true. Do not ever attempt such insubordination again. Beetru looked all around her, looking for a way to escape. There was nothing. She dog-paddled toward the riverbank, defeated. The colonel had walked down near the bank to her right to escort her out of the river. Firehorns now lined both sides of the river as far as she could see. Defeat is always painful, child. Uh, not that I would know that from personal experience, mind you. But I've seen that look on your face so many times before in countless victories across this world. The sound filled the entire world and came from directly above them. Bichu looked up and saw a massive black eagle descending upon her. Its wingspan nearly covered the full width of the river. All the firehorns looked up in awe as the giant bird dropped rapidly towards Bichu in the river. 
Each flap of its gigantic wings created enough wind force to push the firehorns backwards, causing many of them to fall down. The muscles in Beetroo's arms and legs were burning as she attempted to swim away from the approaching eagle. Within seconds, the giant eagle's massive talons opened to grab Beetroo and pull her out of the river. Firehorns! Full group strike! Take out that cursed eagle on my mark and aim for its heart! Mark! At once, hundreds of fireballs blazed with fiery trails towards the eagle with a terrified Beetroo in its clutches. But just as the converging fireballs were about to strike the great bird, it looked up and shot skyward with amazing speed. The bulk of hundreds of fireballs converged at the same moment into a single point, causing a massive explosion. Bichu looked down in horror as the blast wave engulfed all of the firehorns. The giant eagle had saved her, but Bichu was more terrified than ever. She clung desperately to the talons surrounding her as she looked down at the landscape below her. The river was so small below her that it looked like a small dark vein on the surface of the Great Plain. She could see the fires left from the explosion but could not see if any of the firehorns were still alive. They were already far too high for her to make out any details below. She hoped the brick was still alive and wondered if she'd ever see him again. She looked out in front of her and saw they were heading towards the mountains. They were as high as many of the mountains she had seen in the distance over the past two days. The sun hung in the late afternoon sky. Midday, up one of the first snow-covered peaks at the beginning of the mountain range, Bichu saw a small, dark opening. As the eagle approached the opening, Bichu could see that it was the entrance to a cave with a small landing in front of it. The eagle hovered over the ledge in front of the cave and released Bichu from its talons. She fell a few inches to the ground, face first, as the eagle rotated, flapping dust in Bichu's face and landing several feet away from her. Oh, Bichu, I'm so very sorry about all of this, said a familiar voice that Bichu knew at once. It was Queen Cosmo, who had suddenly emerged from inside the cave. Bichu felt immediate relief at the sight of the queen and smiled happily. I'm so very sorry I left you stranded on the plain. I will explain everything, answer all of your questions. Please, though, follow me inside. We have much to discuss and much to prepare for said the queen as she waited for Bichu to get up slowly and follow her inside the cave. Chapter 6 Clarity and Purpose Part 1 The force of Colonel Rise's small fireball explosion had indeed thrown Bichu into the river, but it had also thrown Brick hard against the riverbank, knocking him unconscious. He'd been left behind by everyone as the entire battalion had left the area in pursuit of Beetroo. He awoke with a fierce headache and aching body. He'd been fortunate to come to rest, feet down, after falling unconscious, as it gets harder and harder for older turtles to flip themselves over when they find themselves upside down. He looked around for Beetroo and the firehorns, but they were gone. 
What happened to Beetroo after the explosion? Brick wondered. He had no idea that she'd been thrown into the river by the blast or that she'd evaded capture. He began to worry that she'd been knocked unconscious like him and captured by Rise and his battalion. He was perplexed, unsure what to do next. It had been many years since he'd been involved in as much activity as he had once Beechu arrived at the riverbank. He'd been content as an old hermit, far removed from the battles that raged between Queen Cosima, the Red Scourge, and the Chairman. For so many years that he'd forgotten how much he used to care about the outcome of these struggles. Life had been easy and carefree by the riverbank in the middle of the Great Plain. He'd grown fully complacent. But Beetru had stoked a fire in him. I must find Beetru before she falls into the chairman's clutches, asserted Brick. But he needed a plan, and to this point, he had no such plan. He needed to restore his gadgets. Yes, with his gadgets he could certainly help. But he hadn't used them in years, and all required extensive repair. In the distance, Brick could hear voices, most likely Colonel Rise, but he was too far away and too low to the ground to decipher any of them. He was also too low to the ground to see anything down the river. They haven't captured her yet. Hope remains. Brick walked as fast as he could, ignoring his aching body, determined to try to help Beechru by whatever means possible. Perhaps he could create a diversion to buy her time to escape. It was an unrealistic long shot, but at the moment, it was the only plan he had. Just then, something in the sky caught his eye. It was Queen Cosma's personal escort, the massive black eagle known as Vega, and she was descending towards the river. Vega! Vega! exclaimed Brick joyously. Brick's heart soared. The arrival of Vega meant that Queen Cosmo was back in play and that she'd escaped Myla the Enchantress. He watched as Vega got closer and closer to the river until she dropped below his field of view. He was still very far from the action, but he could now start to make out what Colonel Rise was shouting. Brick stopped abruptly in his tracks. He knew there were hundreds of fire horns. He shuddered at the sickening sound of hundreds of fireballs headed rapidly towards Vega. No! 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 He watched in awe as Vega flew rapidly and majestically skyward with Beechu in her grasp. He felt a brief moment of relief before he saw the huge flash of the fireball explosion. In mere nanoseconds, the shockwave lifted Brick off the ground tossing him violently backwards over the river where his shell struck a large stone sticking several inches out of the river, cracking his shell and sending Brick careening in a large arc that ended on the opposite side of the river where he crashed, rolling end over end, coming to a stop upside down on his cracked shell, motionless. Part 2 for the first time since Beetru had passed through the egress into the wood and met Queen Cosima, she was clean, well-fed, and fully hydrated. She was also well-rested. 
Cosma had insisted she get nourishment and sleep before they spoke at any great length. And while this initially frustrated Beetroot, she was more than happy to consume the wonderfully delicious vegetable soup and fruit salad provided to her by Cosma's two human assistants, Ama and Foyd, two polite women who had worked for the Queen for many years. After Vega had delivered Beetroot to the cave entrance, the Queen had escorted her deep inside the mountain, using her bright golden eyes to light their way through a maze-like series of winding passages until they'd reached a massive hall, every bit as large as the arenas back home where she went to see her favorite bands. The room was illuminated warmly by large glowing lanterns mounted on long poles that emitted golden light, just like Queen Cosima's golden eyes. Mounted into the upper walls were large stone heads, statues of twenty different Suryulian hinds spaced evenly from one side of the hall to the other in a line. In the center of the hall was a large fire pit. To the sides of the fire pit were two large tables, one rectangular with many chairs, the other a square with no chairs and a large map. Arma and Foyd had come from the left passage to greet Beetru and escort her down the same passage to a bedroom at the end of a long, dimly lit hallway. Arma was a middle-aged woman with a warm smile and gentle voice. She wore a modest, dark green robe. Foyd was much younger and much louder, but also sweet. She wore a sleek, white, elegant, formal robe and did most of the talking. The bedroom was lit with three small glowing lanterns mounted to the stone walls and held a large bed with big fluffy pillows, a dresser, and nightstand. There were no pictures or any decorations, but on the bed were a pair of dark green jeans, underwear, socks, and a gray long-sleeved t-shirt. There was also a washroom and tub adjacent to the bedroom. Not much to write home about in the Queen's Mountain stronghold, certainly not in the guest quarters, but everything is clean, and bathing in hot mountain spring water will warm the ache out of your bones, said Foyd with a big smile. Go clean up before the bathwater gets cold, said Amma. After two strange days spent dealing with talking animals and violent unicorns, it felt good to interact with people again, and Foyd was right. The spring water bath warmed the aches and pains out of Beetru's body. She got out, put on her new clothes, and went back into the bedroom. Foyd had set up a tiny table and chair along with her dinner and a large pitcher of water. She happily consumed everything on the table. She had no intentions of sleeping before talking to the queen, but after she'd eaten, she felt immensely sleepy and climbed onto the bed. I'll rest my eyes just for a few minutes, she said to herself. Within a few minutes, she was sound asleep. Now she was seated at the end of the large rectangular table in the large hall. She had been waiting for several minutes when the queen emerged from the passageway at the back of the hall and approached Beetru. Beetru, I trust you're well-fed, well-hydrated, and well-rested? asked the queen with a warm smile. Yes, Amma and Foyd have been amazing, Your Majesty. Cosima, my dear, 
We have so much to cover and so little time to do so. I'm going to ask for you to simply listen as best you can, for much of what I'm about to share with you will be very disturbing, said the queen as she sat down on her rear haunches, still towering several feet above Beetru. Some twenty years ago, two visitors arrived in purity from a different world, and their arrival triggered a series of events that resonate to this very moment. Their arrival changed everything, and mostly for the worst. These visitors met with the late King Walter, the generous ruler of purity before the chairman assumed control. King Walter was also a dear friend of mine, and together we forged numerous trade agreements and shared ideals as well as resources. It was a great time of peace before the visitors arrived. Did you meet or know these visitors? asked Beetru. Yes, I knew them very well, actually. They had come seeking help in saving their world, something that King Walter was willing to provide. Unfortunately, the chairman and the dark scourge, who was then a young apprentice assisting the chairman, named Jax, were corrupted by the power of the visitor's quantum tunneler, the device they used to open the doorway between their world and this one. The enigmatic egress? asked Beetru. Yes, indeed. It seems Brick shared some of this story with you already. Yes, the enigmatic egress. What little I understood about the tunneler was that it harnessed something the visitors called exotic matter, which they said was pushed by gravity and quantum fluctuations. The tunneler harnessed and stabilized these fluctuations, tightened and focused them enough to create something they called a portal or wormhole through which they could pass from world to world. The science was above most everyone's head, save for the female visitor who invented the tunneler. Were these visitors humans? Yes, they were. The woman was a scientist, as was the man, but the woman was not happy about anything that was happening in purity. She knew the tunneler was too unrefined, too erratic and unstable, while the man, also a scientist, wanted to push forward into an agreement with King Walter to help save their planet from environmental collapse. But King Walter knew the risk was high, and that the tunneler posed a risk to our world here, and insisted that the visitors return once the woman visitor felt the technology was stable. That's when things took a terrible turn for the worse. Beetru could feel a sudden chill shoot down her spine. I sat there in that meeting in Purity as trusted counsel to King Walter with the King, Purity's team of scientists, the Chairman, Jax, and the two visitors. I saw the looks on the faces of the chairman and Jax, and could tell neither of them had any intentions of allowing either of the visitors to leave. I watched as they whispered something to themselves while the king and the visitors discussed next steps. I also saw that the king's restraint and call for further research and development to stabilize the tunneler was not only a huge disappointment to the chairman and Jax, but also to the man. They all shared a similar look, a look of quiet rage. Beatrice was lost in thought, 
her brain raising and answering questions at a blistering pace. She looked up to Cosma, looked deep into her golden eyes. Cosma could see that Beatrice was putting things together quicker than she thought she would. Beatrice, the chairman and Jack's poisoned King Walter. This has always been crystal clear to me. I have maintained serious regrets for leaving that meeting that day because I knew in my heart that something wicked was afoot. But I never thought it would happen as it did, or happen so quickly. By the time I arrived back to my kingdom in Medona, the deed was already done, and the chairman assumed rule in purity. Beatrice leaned forward in her chair. This happened twenty years ago? Yes. Beatrice felt a mixture of both excitement as well as horror, and was scared to ask the next question because, really, she already knew the answer. Is there a significant difference in time between both our worlds? Yes, there is. For every one year in your world, ten years pass in this world. Beatrice could feel an overpowering sense of excitement building in her stomach and throughout her body, her mind, and her heart. And yes, my dear, it was your parents who came through the enigmatic egress, despite your mother's pleas to your father. She was so worried about leaving you and your brother behind and coming to this world. And yes, they are still alive, and twenty years older, and being held captive in purity. They are alive because the chairman needs their scientific knowledge to advance his technology in purity and in this world. And if we can move quickly and keep you from being caught, we may be able to save not only them, but both our worlds. Before either the chairman or Dark Scourge and their growing lust for power destroy everything. Part three. Brick awoke upside down and in serious pain. He'd survived the shockwave, but not without serious injury. When he'd struck the rock in the river at such high velocity, it created a long crack in his shell. And the pain made it impossible for him to flip back over on his feet. It was now dark on the great plain, and from Brick's vantage point, the stars in the sky were below him. The effect made Brick feel dizzy, as did the loss of blood from being upside down with a cracked shell. I'm doomed like this, thought Brick, wondering how long it would be before some wandering coyote or vulture began picking at him or eating him. This is no fate for a river turtle," he said to himself. Suddenly, he heard footsteps coming from behind him. They were getting closer. Brick was frightened, but also curious because they were human footsteps—two feet, not four—and humans on the plain were a rare thing. Looks like you could use some help there, little fella," said a male voice Brick had never heard before. All at once. Brick felt himself being gently flipped back upright, but he was too weak to turn around to see who had come to his rescue. I don't know if you can talk like the other animals I've met to this point, but if you can, maybe you can help me. Brick watched as a young man came from behind him and got down on one knee to talk to him. He had light brown hair, brown eyes, and an outfit that was nearly identical to Beatrice—blue sneakers, blue jeans, and a gray hoodie over a black T-shirt. Oh wow! This is a serious crack on your shell. You need help," 
said the young man. I can try to help you, and maybe you can help me too. My name is Dante, and I'm looking for my little sister, Beatrue. I don't suppose you've seen her, asked Dante, hopefully. However did you find me out here, or know to come this way down the river, asked Brick. So you can talk, said Dante with a hopeful smile. I used my tracker until about five hours ago when it stopped working. Then I saw those crazy horses with their fire powers, and then that massive explosion, and now I'm just worried I've lost her forever. Brick smiled. No, I'm happy to report that she escaped the firehorns and the explosion from what I could tell. I was knocked out and tossed up here by the shockwave. I hit my shell in the process and I'm not even sure I can walk. But I saw her fly away with Vega just before the explosion. So you believe Beatrice alive? Uh, how do we get to her? I have to find her exclaimed Dante. That, my friend, will require a large amount of ingenuity. But if you can take me back to my den, which isn't too far from here, I think I can help us find her. She's with the queen, Queen Cosima. Queen who? asked Dante, as both he and Brick heard something stirring from down below near the river. Suddenly, walking slowly but with purpose, Colonel Rise trotted up from the riverbank and shot two tiny fireballs that struck Dante and Brick directly in the forehead, knocking both unconscious. Dante fell backwards on his back, and Brick's head fell an inch to the ground. Colonel Rise's coat was almost completely charred black. Somehow, he'd survived the explosion and lived to track down Brick and Dante. His laser-green eyes held a searing rage as he leaned his head back slightly to fire a series of huge bright red flares up into the night sky that seemed to go beyond the highest mountain peaks. His signal for reinforcements. <laughs>